Hey, this is Tyler Murphy, and you're listening to the Lonely Painter Podcast. Just going to do a quick sound check here. So, Garth, how are you this morning? Doing well. Is this official? This is official. This is happening. We're doing it now. Oh, not so bad. (laughs) What have you been reading this morning? Uh, So, the two things I've been reading, still working through Heretics by G.K. Chesterton. And then I just started Carl Sagan's Cosmos. So, going on more scientific. I am also reading Heretics, and then I just got Emancipation After Hegel in the mail, and I'm excited to uh, jump into that a little more. And I've I've asked Garth to also read that with me, so that uh, we can we can argue and discuss. Which is actually that. a huge test of our friendship because the number one thing I don't like reading is books. Uh, that someone's written about somebody else in terms of like this is what this guy is saying in his philosophy like you can write a biography that's fine I'm gonna write about Churchill but when you're gonna write a book saying this is what this guy is saying I'm like I would just rather read what that guy's saying <laughs> sure and go from there but uh, but I'll do it for you well we can jump into Hegel after this maybe I'm so unfamiliar with Hegel so Probably. That's Let's why. That I, that's why I think that we should. Okay. He's notoriously like one of the hardest. I've literally just never read anything. So he's notoriously one of the hardest philosophers to understand. So, um, so I, I don't know. Challenge accepted. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I thought today that maybe we could talk about um, uh, binaries a little bit. This is something I've kind of talked about with Garth here and there um, that I think has uh, made my experience of life a little richer thinking in this way, where you split uh, or you parse out nuances between seemingly similar words. Mm. And um, by doing that, it kind of increases our vocabulary and our Mm -hmm. way of of talking about and thinking about the world. So the binaries that I've kind of uh, looked at here, some of these actually come from Chesterton, ones that I've found while reading his his work. Love and Admiration, we talked about that like two Mm -hmm. episodes back. I went back and listened to that Mm -hmm. a little while ago, and I realized I I was not following what you were saying. (laughs) At all, yeah. I don't yeah. <laughs> and uh, but what we what you were saying was was profound. So we'll we'll cover the difference between love and admiration. Cool. Let's talk about the difference between joy and happiness or pleasure. Uh, Chesterton, we were just reading. I was just reading yesterday. Uh, he kind of parses out the difference between vanity and pride. Um, I think I'll be able to talk a little bit about the difference between depression and melancholy. And then just this morning reading, I just thought that uh, Chesterton was, he's talking about flattery. And I think that you could maybe parse out the difference between flattery and praise. Mm. If we could, we kind of talk about that. Yeah, that was interesting. I remember what you're talking about now. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, let's start with love and admiration. That was something that you brought up on the podcast Two, like two podcasts back yeah. from from something, and you were saying that we love something without reason, mm-hmm. but we admire something 
something, and we have reasons for why we admire yeah. something. So he made a similar uh, comment in his book, Orthodoxy, where he was saying, you know, for something that you really, really like, um, like your favorite thing, if someone were to ask you, so, you know, Tyler, why do you like painting? You know, or, you know, Garth, why do you like soccer? Why do you like this? You, you have almost no idea what to say. You're like, um, where do I begin? Like, you just can't pick one thing because right. there's just so many. And you could really pick any single one of them. Like, you can think of things to say, but you just don't know which one to pick because it's just like, well, it's therapeutic, it's, you know, creative, it's, you know, I can make money for Like, there's just so many different reasons as to why. And that, to me, kind of goes along with that idea. You don't just say, well, I love this thing because of X, you know. And I'm like, there's, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to be the way that it works. Yeah. Like, so I think I also used the example of, like, a soccer team. Um, it's like, yeah, my, my favorite team, I don't really know why. I can say things that I like, but that's not the reason. Like, well, if, if their jersey wasn't this color, I wouldn't be a fan, you know. Right. It's like, if any one of those things were gone, I'd still like the team, you know. They'd still be my favorite. Yeah. It's like, but those reasons are there. So anyway, he's talking about, you know, when, when you have all these reasons, you know, there's plenty of reasons to admire something. You know, there's plenty of people that I don't like, but I can admire things about them. You know, like, oh, he's got a great, you know, set of skills, or he's great, you know, I don't know, a good order, whatever else. I don't necessarily like that person, but yeah. you can admire that. Yeah. But I don't know, I guess I like the idea of, you know, love, you just, you do. It's just kind of the way it is now. Yeah. And it, uh, to me, it is the idea of, you know, love in that way is, it is in the sense of it just kind of has being, it just is. You know, there's, we talk about being in nothingness, love just kind of is, like I have it. And that's just kind of the way it is. You have that with children, I think, you know, they exist now and you're there and they're like, I just love you. You know, you can never really stop right. loving your parents. Yeah. So I think that's a good example. Yeah. It makes me think of, uh, I've kind of heard it said that like love is not something that exists, but rather something that insists. Mm-hmm. It's an insisting forced force. Yeah. Which you could say like life is sort of that way. It just kind of insists upon yeah. being life on living continuing at some level yeah yeah and it's kind of it's also kind of linked to i think like the notion of object petia the object cause of desire mm-hmm. and like in pervert's guide to ideology zizek has this great uh part where he talks about what is it that causes my desire towards coca-cola mm-hmm. for instance and if if you were to break down the Coca-Cola through chemical analysis, you can't come to like some place, some it's element, this particular some ingredient thing, that yeah that causes causes the desire. It's it's uh, it's kind of like this. I think what he would say is like a extra enjoyment or mm-hmm. what they call surplus enjoyment. This or for Plato, it was the agama the mm-hmm. hidden treasure within that we can never quite put our finger on that draws us towards somebody or something. Mm-hmm. But the, but the object petia, I think it's, it's really elusive too. It can be one thing in an instant and another thing in an, in another instant. Like my reason for loving somebody can be caused by one thing. And then in an instant it can change and the cause then for the effect that is my love towards them is then another thing. 
Yeah. So in one way, it could be an obstacle. Mm-hmm. Like I can't be with this person because this obstacle is in my way. But then you take away the obstacle. So then that, ob- so then that obstacle is no longer the object cause mm-hmm. of the desire. But then there's this other thing that becomes it. But then you, I guess to me, then that would move out of the realm of of love, which I think kind of does exist for its own sake and sort of for the other person's sake, it just kind of is moving into more that sort of admiration or you could say, I don't know, like a crush or something where a circumstance can create, you know, sort of affection where it's like, oh oh, man, the way that he does this or she does this, you know, that's so attractive. Right. You know what I'm saying? And it's right. maybe like, what I'm saying isn't true love. Yeah, I, I guess a part of me thinks that where it's like, you know, even if you didn't, even if you wouldn't, couldn't, I would still feel this way. Yeah. That's kind of the idea. I would, uh, that's my guess or my thought. Well, and also, um, I was talking with a friend last night about, you know, when you take vows to marry somebody and it's, it's that you're getting married uh, or you're, you're promising to love them in sickness and in health. It's easy to love somebody yeah. when they're in health yeah. and when you're rich, but it's it's when you're when they're sick or when you're both both yeah. poor that you don't have reason to love them. Yeah. <laughs> and for so then for the first time possibly then you can actually love them. Well, that's like uh, because then it really is without why yeah. that you love them. <laughs> There's no reason to love you right now. Well, that's like um, <laughs> so Chesterton makes a point in one of his chapters. He's talking about the real virtues of Christianity, which are faith, hope, and charity. And he's like, justice isn't actually like a Christian um, about virtue. Or what was it? Justice and one more. Oh, uh, rationale. Uh, uh, not rationale. What is the word? Reason. Okay. Rationalizing. Anyway, one of those two. Um, but the point he makes is that like, you know, Charity exists, um, like, we, we think of, like, oh, who should we be charitable to? And he's like, you know, obviously, you know, we think, you know, in your mind, people that need charity, which would be, like, oh, you see this man on the street, he's homeless, he has no food, he has no whatever, we need to be charitable towards him. He's like, that's not charity, that's justice, you know? He's like, charity, <laughs> charity exists for those whom they don't deserve it, essentially. Like, the people that you really don't want to be charitable to, is like, those are the people that deserve charity. It's like, it either exists for them or it exists for no one. Yeah, that's really good. I was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) And I think that that, that's true. Uh, You know, love in the same way. It's like, it's easy to love. I mean, the point you were just making, like, yeah, who doesn't love somebody that loves them? Right. I mean, stated very clearly, like, it's easy. Yeah. You know, it's like, you have to love those who hate you. And that, but that, at that essence, that's the truest form of love. You know, it's like, can you love something for its own sake, that really does no benefit to you, maybe even goes against you. Yeah, and that's the real. That's the, the rub. <laughs> there <laughs> lies the rub. And there's the rub. Okay. Anything else? Uh, I don't know. Do we need to talk about admiration? Because that. Well, I, I um, maybe just a bit. Uh, I guess the part that was interesting to me is that, again, going back to soccer, there's plenty of players who play for other teams I don't like, so I have a reason not to. And, and when they succeed, you're like, oh, it just makes you mad. But you then at the still, same time, you you're like, God, he's a good player, though. Look yeah. at him, he's so good. You know? Right. Just uh, objective. You can still admire them, yeah, for these objective yeah. X, Y, and Z. Where it's like, man, facts. who doesn't like that thing, though? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess with that, you might hate him, but you got to admire him. You gotta, that's, that's, you gotta I admire guess him. that's the thing that yeah. you always say. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Nice. 
I like that so far. Okay, so let's talk about the difference between joy and happiness or or pleasure. And also, I want to say, like, these words, I'm not... Like, what we're doing here is, is we're trying to parse out the difference between certain kinds of experiences, but yeah. these words don't have to don't have to be linked to like you could almost flip the the words yeah but we're using you you still have to assign a word to an experience yeah. to be able to make sense of anything yeah and this is the, i think this is a you know this is kind of like Saussure and that language arises out of the play of differences and so we're sitting here in recliners. We're sitting here in chairs, I should say. But there's a chair over there by the kitchen table. But this is a recliner, mm -hmm. and that's They're both a chairs, chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, like you said, I mean, it comes down to the nuances. But but the sort of but thing. the word recliner and mm -hmm. wooden chair are contingent. Like you, in some sense, like we don't ha we wouldn't necessarily have to be hold. To, in some universe, we could call this a wooden chair and that a recliner. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. That, that That's the kind of subjective aspect of it. It's like, well, recliner comes from the word recline, means this, and it's like a whole context built in. Yeah. But you could have picked wooden to mean recline just right. at the beginning. It just yeah. so happened to be recline, you know, or whatever. Right. So, so I just yeah. wanted to put that caveat out here that as we go, especially once we start talking about, like, depression and melancholy. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's... I, I'm not totally like committed so, right. to to the word, but okay. but just a way of they they're a way of talking about these different kinds of experiences. Yeah, so, exactly. Okay. okay, so back to joy and happiness or pleasure. So this is actually kind of a C.S. Lewis um, uh, differentiation where that he makes, where he talks about that joy is like the kid um, and the experience that the kid that the child has leading up to Christmas and he's got the uh, presents around the Christmas tree and he's just so excited he can hardly stand it um, fantasizing about what's in the box and how great it's going to be to finally yeah. get that present there is you know of course it, it's like it's like a painful joy for the kid because he is, yeah he can hardly stand it but everybody from the outside knows that oh this is this is like the pleasure because as soon as he opens that gift it's going to be it's going to be fun in that moment and that's what yeah. that's what lewis would call happiness or pleasure uh but but that also can can kind of be followed by a letdown yeah i think you know, just when you said it, it reminded me, like, joy is almost this idea of, I don't know, it's like an idea of, like, a, a almost an outlook on the world. You know, that in the future that good exists, that it's out there, that it's coming, you know what I mean? It's sort of like a, a hope, in a way, mm. where it's like, ooh, this Yes, is, very much. Yeah, very which, much is, so. which is interesting, I guess. Happiness feels like the state, but joy, like, I don't know, I guess you can have a joyful view of the world... You know, but you wouldn't be like, oh, a happy view. It's like, it's not quite the same as yeah. it like happy is this kind of thing. Like you feel happy when this happens, but joy is like I said, almost a state of, of being or perspective yeah. on, and which can even go into negative things like to be joyful. 
you know, count it all joy is the way they say, but it's like maintain that view in spite of, you know, whatever. It's like I can actually be joyful and maintain this outlook and this positive experience in the midst of negative things. Um, because those things don't define whatever reality or whatever else or my my person. Whereas happiness seems to be much more tied up in like, it has to be a good experience. If it's a bad experience, you're not happy. Yeah. Yeah, happiness is, it kind of like is a gift that falls falls to us every once in a while. Yeah. And, yeah, and we should just learn to accept that and revel in it when it's there. Yeah. But but I think you're right that joy is, is it, it is something that can be cultivated. And maybe it's it's learning to enjoy the not having. Mm-hmm. So it's learning to it's it's being the kid. It's like being the child, looking at the Christmas gifts, and all of a sudden realizing, oh, this is what this is like. Where the joy of life is yeah. is in this moment right here and now of this not having of these things. Yeah. I think Lewis also talks about it as it's like the aroma versus versus the eating of of a of a food of yeah. a dish. So it's it's like that it's like that mm it's like it's a pleasurable the, the, the like thing experience is the pleasurable thing, thing is. is there before you yeah. but you're not quite having it yet. Yeah. But there's this and and you can really get that like when you uh say are thinking through the day about like what you plan to cook yeah. at you know with a friend or something mm-hmm. and like oh how great that experience is going to be or or just whatever like if you have a vacation coming up like just sitting around and enjoying the the fantasy of how much you're going to enjoy how much <laughs> yeah. pleasure you're going to get from the yeah when you're on it yeah and i think I don't know, I guess I think with that the idea of joy as well. Like I said, there's the future expectation, this sort of outlook. And you talked about, you know, but there could be a letdown. I, I think that's why, you know, you probably set in your mind, if you're the kid, you're thinking of, like, <laughs> you know, Jordan Peterson, go like, your highest possible good. You know what I'm saying? You're thinking, like, what's the greatest thing I can receive? But also probably being, like, not like a million dollars, but, like, that's within my realm of, of reach. Like, a Nintendo. I'm thinking of that video, of that kid who gets, like, a Nintendo 64. And he, like, loses his mind. Have you seen that? Mm-mm. That's very funny. But, you know, just thinking, like, what's the best thing I can see? And he's like, oh, it's going to be, like, Nintendo and Mario Kart. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so there's, like, that idea. And you've tied up all your, like I said, all your view of, of the universe kind of in that idea and that thing. of Like, when that happens, it'll be this. And then you open it up. And it's sort of, like, that expectation, the joy fulfilled at some level. It's like, this is it. This is, you know, pure reality, whatever else. Yeah. I don't know, I guess that's kind of the case. And so and like the so, melancholy so, comes a little later. <laughs> well, you know, and you know, but I mean it's it's sort of like I don't know, it's not just tied up in like, oh, but you're gonna play it and then you find out that Mario Kart's stupid or you don't have any friends who wanna play Mario Kart with you and then you don't like it, you know. I mean that's or you know what I'm saying, something like that. Um And so I mean, I guess you could tie that up, but like I said, there's that point of like you've created this, you know, view of what you want things to be and I guess that's just getting in more expectation and belief about life, you know. Mm-hmm. Whenever you're disappointed, it's going to be it's going to be hard. And as we know, like I said, I guess we said that before that joy itself is something that's not necessarily tied up in experience, enjoy and the fulfillment of those experiences, you know what I mean? That right. that's the nature of life besides. So it's not like 
you can be joyful even though you didn't get the Nintendo or whatever. Is kind of the idea. Right, right. Okay, so, so let's okay, let's just real quick touch on depression and melancholy because actually it's really linked to the yeah. same idea. So uh, the way I've heard it is like there's this experience that we have of that is the pain of not getting what we want yeah and then there is the uh experience of getting what you want and no longer wanting it Mm -hmm. or being disappointed in that it doesn't fulfill you and satisfy you yeah and so the pain you could say in one you know the word that a lot of times we can link to the pain of not having the thing that you want you're pining for the next for this relationship or um the better job or yeah. you know getting into that gallery or whatever like um and in that sense then we kind of have uh depression so we're depressed that like we're missing out on something and then melancholy is this experience of, okay, you finally got the thing, you got into the gallery, and then you realized, yeah, and then you realize like, oh, life doesn't, that doesn't solve all the problems of my life. I still, yeah. I still have to wake up and deal with, you know, all the problems that any human has to deal with. Yeah. Um, so that's what I think. Schopenhauer, the philosopher, talks about like we're on this pendulum swing between, well, he calls it boredom and pain. So the uh, pain is that we don't have the thing that we want, and then we finally get it, and then we're bored. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay. Anyways, I don't know that we need to. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, just a little. Um, yeah, I think the interesting thing is about like depression is there's that. I don't know, like if we've just totally tied it up with this kind of mental aspect of like I'm depressed, I'm sad all the time, whatever else. But I think the interesting thing to me is is the physical, I mean, you are depressed. You know, you take depressants, right? Or I'm what, caught, not suppressant, I guess is the word, but there's depressant. What drugs are depressant? Do you know? No. Yeah, I'm not well versed in my pharmacology. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there's that idea of like sort of just being depressed, and that's kind of the interesting thing how it just sucks life out of you, or the life is sort of just pushed down. Yeah, I don't know. I guess that, that was the part that was interesting to me. Um, but also, oh, sorry, good. Well, there's also a, a little oh. difference between depression and sadness that I've mm-hmm. heard, like a, a nuance between those two. Yeah, that I think is sure. is worth is worth mentioning that sadness kind of has an object to which. Or an experience to which you can point to and mm-hmm. say, I am sad because of X. Yeah, my dog happened. my dog died. And I'm I'm really sad. De- but depression is kind of more almost like the buildup of yeah. lots and lots of losses that we've never really yeah. um that we've never really uh dealt with or looked soberly at. Okay, so I was trying to rem- remember this point, um, and it just came back to me. I think what you just said is right, by the way. But, um, you know, melancholy is, like you said, I think that's true. It's like you kind of get that thing and you're like, oh, it's, it's not what I hoped for. And I think that's, that's kind of the crux of depression is that you desperately want this thing, whatever it is, or maybe a number of things or a certain way of being, but then you want it in a very particular way. 
So, okay. you know, and maybe it's even the realization that, like, I could get that thing, and I know melancholy is waiting for me on the other side. So it's like, even if I do this and get that, this will be the case. And so that's the part that really then, it's like, it kind of removes the drive, because you'll have this drive, of like, I really want to get, you know, I really want to get this thing. I really want to have this thing happen. I want to get, a, you know, a better outcome at work. It's like, yeah. but will you do the things required? And it's like, well, I, I know I could work really hard and get this and this, but would that gain the respect that I'm looking for? Or maybe I'm looking for that sort of affirmation that says, like, you are this thing. And you're like, well, I can do all this stuff and get that, but it's not going to give me that ultimate thing that I want. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I mean, it's like, oh, I want to get money because I want prestige. And then, you know, you realize that no one cares. They treat you well, but they don't actually believe you're that thing. Right. And so there's, like, the melancholy that goes with that. So I think at some level, depression, people are depressed are at like, like I said, at some level, a little bit further ahead. Like, they're thinking, like, you know, I could do that, but it's probably just going to be this. So what's the point? And so, like I said, but then I it just pushes they, your, like, your energy down. I think that they had to have first experienced profound melancholy before you get back to that kind of depression. Yeah, there could be this continual state of being in this sort of, like I said, melancholy of life. Where you oh. finally got the thing that yeah. you thought was going to, like, fix everything in your life, and then you realize that, oh, it doesn't. Yeah, and then you then you might kind of fall back into a depressive state where there's things that you want, but ultimately you know that vanity, vanity, it's all yeah. vanity. It's all well, and that's the funny thing. Like you could definitely, you know, people are depressed. Like, oh, my job sucks. Or my, you know, I'm I'm single or whatever, whatever. I'm like, well, you could you could get a girlfriend. You know, you could. Yeah, it's like that's there's just there's tons of people. Yeah, you know, there's so many people. It's like. But then you want to narrow it down. Like, well, I don't just want any old girlfriend, you know. It's right. like, I like it if she were you know, X and then this. And then you add in all these variables and it's like, okay, so it's not about a girlfriend. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it is, but she's got to be this very particular perfect thing or, you know, whatever that meets all these different needs within you. And so it's like once you do that, then yeah, it does get very difficult because it's not just like, you know, it's finding a girlfriend. You can solve that pretty quickly, you know. It's like, but trying to find a girl who's, Blonde hair, blue eyes, 5'10", you know, whatever, whatever. It has to be this, wants to be a stay-at-home mom, but also can make money at a you know, side gig at home. And it's like, oh, well, then I'll, <laughs> you just narrow down your options. And, like, it's kind of going to depress you, honestly. It's like, because you're right. That's way harder to find than a woman versus, you know, a woman who there's only, like, 100,000 of them in the world, you know. And the odds yeah. that they'll even be attracted to you if you find it is also slim, you know. Yeah. It's like that, yeah, that would depress you. Well, and it's also, like, along those lines, we want contradictory things. So you just said, like, yeah, we I want... About that. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Mean, but... This is, like, a, a kind of a become a lot more popular in, in, like, psychological circles to point this out. But that idea of, like, we want our, uh, you know, we want safety and security, but we want excitement and danger. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. In, in, a, in a partner and so well, I think that's that's where I would say like one of the, a really important thing to understand in life is that we have contradictory desires within us yeah that are so we live in this experience of both and mm-hmm. of wanting one thing and the other but but the fact is though that we live in either or situations. And so we have to reconcile ourselves, not to, 
you, we can't reconcile that tension yeah. that is the either or tension, but rather we become reconciled to the fact that we want both things, but we can only have one yeah. or the other. Well, I suppose to me, the idea of or when, when you get depressed, it's, it's not just that you want something outside of yourself. Like, I think you do want this, like this level of being like, I want to have money, but I don't want to like grind and do all this stuff to make it happen, which feels almost maybe cheap. You know what I'm saying? We don't, we're afraid of being Gatsby of like doing all these things and making all this money and then still no respect because it's not old money or it's not, you know, whatever. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's like you want this thing, but I guess I think it's, it's just that it's not, it's not a thing. You want a sense of being. So even, you know, for a guy like I want a girlfriend who's like I said, this perfect super thing, she's Margot Robbie. We just watched about time, you know, it's like that, this kind of girl. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, Yes, I think that's true, but more likely to me is that you want to be a guy that that girl wants. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Which would then, obviously, um, what's the word? Kind of include that. Because if you're a guy that that girl wants and that girl's going to want you, the odds that you'll have that girl then is pretty good. Yeah. But I think it's more of that, not just like obtain her by hook or by crook, you know, to get this person to like you. It's like, no, you, you want to be that thing that can be esteemed and valued as that thing. So, what does that come from? That saying by hook or by crook? I don't know if it's like an acting. I've heard that hook too. Hook or by crook, like a. I've heard that. Somewhere too. Here, uh, uh, let me pause this for a second. Make sure it's still recording. Okay. Okay. All right. We're still recording. Okay. So let's let's move on to. Um, so we've got uh, the difference between vanity and pride, and then maybe let's also finish with uh, flattery and praise. So vanity and pride. um, Maybe I'll just, I took a note as I was reading this in my little Google document here. Maybe I can find it. So this is from Chesterton. He says, uh, vanity is social. It is almost a kind of comradeship. Pride is solitary and uncivilized. Vanity is active. It desires the applause of infinite multitudes. Pride is passive, desiring only the applause of one person, which it already has. Vanity is humorous and can enjoy the joke even of itself. Pride is dull and cannot even smile. Um, and then one, one other little, little uh, bit. So he says, uh, self is the Gorgon, which the Gorgon, uh, I had to look this up, but he is like, Medusa was a Gorgon, mm-hmm. monster. Uh, a monster that turns, who who's, who uh, draws the gaze of, of man mm-hmm. and turns them to stone. So he says, self is the Gorgon. Vanity sees self in the mirror of other men and lives. Pride studies self for itself and is turned to stone. And uh, so I, I read this the morning after having just watched the movie Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And to me, Abraham Lincoln is like a perfect example of what, of how to think of this idea of the difference between vanity and pride. In some ways, I think you could say that Lincoln maybe was as vain a person as ever there has been. Mm-hmm. He... Apparently, you know, he would go in and have his photograph taken like almost every day mm-hmm. when 
when uh, photography was just coming into its own. He had no problem getting up, making speeches, um, and just the very, the kind of person that believes in themselves enough to have the audacity to even rise to the, to even try to become yeah, president. To think that people value <laughs> yeah. you that much or something. Right, yeah. and that you have something yeah. Yeah. to give. That that takes a certain level of vanity. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that any of us could say that Lincoln was uh, uh, overly prideful anyways. Yeah. If at all. Yeah. So I, I think that that's... So he says, uh, you know, vanity is social. It is almost a kind of comradeship. Pride is solitary and uncivilized. Vanity is active. Just like, yeah. just like Lincoln. It desires the applause of infinite multitudes. Uh, you know, pride is passive, desiring only the applause of one person. Right. It, it pride. Yeah. Is is it's wanting and it's and so he says which it already has. So it's you congratulating yourself yeah. for being above. Not being the kind of person that needs the applause of the multitudes. That I've risen above. Yeah. That. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> Well, it takes a little bit of thinking because I think, or like of processing through because I think we have thought a lot more like vanity is just, it sounds awful. Like don't, you know, anything but being vain, you know? Yeah. But being prideful, it's like, well, it's, you don't want to be excessively so, but you know, you need to take pride in your work and take pride in, you know, whatever else. So this idea of pride but being see, much I better. see, I think that's even different too, right? Taking pride in your work or in what you've done. Yeah, but versus I... Versus the kind of pride I think that he's talking yeah. about that says I'm better I'm, that's beneath me to yeah. stoop to that kind of of self-aggrandizement yeah. that you perceive as self-aggrandizement or something. Well, I think it's interesting what he's saying that, and I think it's kind of true, like pride is this individual thing, which sounds great at, at a time, at, in some ways, like it's just me, you know, and I, I hold myself by my own standards. It's, you know, we like that sort of thing, yeah. right? Of, you know, a man who's not swayed by the public and he's just standing on his own principles and, you know, staunch, you know, whatever. Right. But uh, I like the way that Chesterton puts it. It's like, it's much more forgivable for a man to be vain. It's at the service of people at some level. Right. And like said, it's even in relation to people. You know, you're kind of hoping, you're almost in service to people. But pride is like, said this thing that like sits on the outside and is almost too objective for itself. Too cool for school, really. Is yeah, that, it's, is it is. Saying. Yeah, it's like, it's, yeah. it's always, it's like it's sitting on the outside judging everything else. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Always kind of observing from afar rather than vanity, which is kind of like, you know, makes a joke and then makes looks around to make sure everyone's laughing. You know, uh -huh. like we that was good, right? Okay, you know, like yeah. it's a part of the game. Whereas Pride will make a joke and be like, "Yeah, I'm funny. That's right." And it sort of has this little bit of resentment, almost mm -hmm. or a feel of it, like mm -hmm. it's looking at everybody else, like you're less than. Right. That's funny. Yeah. Never thought of that. I kind of glossed over that part. I think. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, I mean. I think it stuck out to me because there's this great line in the movie Lincoln where uh, Mary Lincoln is welcoming all these guests into the home. And there's this guy who is, has been, they're on the same side as Lincoln in the pursuit of, uh, passing the 13th amendment, but they've kind of been at odds with Lincoln on other things in the past. And they, they just don't really all get along very well. And, and Mary Lincoln, like, uh, just, just basically, 
she she's like rubbing it in in their face uh the fact that her husband is so well loved yeah and that like they will never love you the way they love my husband <laughs> like they come to they flock to him by the thousands to see him speak they will never love you the way <laughs> and then he said and then she says but we're getting along now or so i'm told and she, and she says to this guy like smile and uh, he, he says, I believe I am smiling, Miss Lincoln. And it's just like, he's just deadpan. But that's t- totally, it's because he, he's like this prideful yeah. guy. He's, he's, he doesn't, uh, that character doesn't, doesn't have the ability to be vain in the way that Lincoln could be vain. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the character it reminds me of. But that's really interesting, actually. Because that's, I mean, that's such a thing, though. It's, it's like kinda... the, the idea of just one is in relation to people and one just isn't. Yeah. Like, so, that, so that vanity is like, this guy's so vain, but you can kind of play with it because it's okay because he's, you know, a part of things. Well, it's like, I... But it's so, it's almost insufferable. Like the guy who's prideful, like there's nothing you can do to try and change his mind, to try and get him into things because he'll always look at you, the situation, and even himself in this kind of like just cold and unfeeling manner yeah you're like oh well it says yeah vanity is humorous and can enjoy and can enjoy the joke even of itself yeah probably recognizes some level like i said is a little self-aware in that way yeah yeah but also the right amount of like not self-conscious because it's still good it's like pride is too self-conscious of everything like it gets the game too well that oh it's just you know it's so meaningless to even get into this and I can show that I'm so great because I recognize its meaninglessness, you know, whereas pride can kind of just play the game because, well, that's fun. Or, I mean, excuse me, uh, vanity can play the game because, I don't know. Like, it, it doesn't have to look at everything, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. okay. I like the, I like work. Good talk. I like that. Okay, so then, then we got flattery and praise, which I don't think that Chesterton really makes the, uh, I don't know that he talks about praise... I don't know that he sets them up as differences, but mm. I kind of was just thinking of this as, as we were getting started here. So he says, um, A man may say that a giraffe's head strikes the stars, or that a whale fills the German ocean, and still be only in a rather excited state about a favorite animal. But when he begins to congratulate the giraffe on its feathers and the whale on the elegance of its legs, we find ourselves confronted with the social element which we call flattery. So it's when we like the exaggeration of a, of something that's there is much more forgivable than just the complete like adding on or attributing of something that's definitely not there. Yeah, you know, it's like you give a dollar, he's the most generous man. You're like, oh, that's a bit much, you know, versus someone who never gives and he's like, he is generous. It's a different, or you know, man who's a liar and say he's honest. You know, it's like, well, it's a different. Different thing to attribute something that's not even there, rather to to stretch out something that actually is. Yeah, and the truth the truth of like when we flatter somebody and are lying about, um, in that sense, we're like what he's saying when we're attributing to something that attributing to them something that they are not. Mm-hmm. They might go that that person might go along with it, but they know in their heart of hearts that it's all a show too well and what's the point of you doing so I think that's 
you know, the main thing that flattery seems to have more to do with the person giving the, you know, the quote unquote praise. Yeah. Like, what's the point? What do you hope to gain by saying this? Yeah. You know, whereas you can like stretch out like, oh, she's so this because you're really attracted to it versus, or versus, you know, saying something that's not completely there. Like, what do you, why, why say it? You know, you could have said something that is true. Like maybe she's not super um, generous, but maybe she's very kind, you know, or I don't know, something like that. Like you could embellish on something that is there, but instead you chose to pick something that wasn't there and say that it was. What was your point in doing so? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. For the appearances or I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, no, I guess I don't have quite as many thoughts on that one. Well, he goes on to, to basically say the, the whole reason that he's talking about flattery in this part of the book is that he's, he's talking about how um, these different popular novels at the time are, are making, uh, are, are um, depicting the, arist- uh, the upper class, the aristocracy, and, and attributing to them a wit that actually most people in yeah. that upper class probably don't have. Yeah. And that he and so he goes on to say that like okay so you're praising them you're flattering them with something that they're actually not by mm. in these novels that's what you're doing, that's his critique to these different authors, he and he's instead saying like what well, you know, if you want to know like if you want really witty banter, you don't you don't go to the upper class you go to the slums yeah like the the quick wit that people that two omnibus drivers exchange back and forth yeah you know as they're as one pisses off the other yeah like that's where you're gonna the banter yeah the banter yeah well that's i mean the honest the real place where you find that like you said is what i think was like the banter between the boys you know or whatever it's like whereas there's always that witty um you know interaction where it's like everything's being thrown back so quickly but like i said it's kind of between the boys you know what i'm saying where you're all ragging on each other it's like and you find that more a lot more, except at the lower end of the, like the socioeconomic spectrum, the lower classes, right. so to speak. Yeah. It's like where you have that kind of, not gang mentality, but sort of like brotherhood boys mentality, which you, I don't think, find as much, like you said at the top. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I'm just thinking like, you know, the banter yeah. aspect of like the lads. But of course, so then Garth and I, just before we started recording, we were talking about all this. And of course you do find that in an Aaron Sorkin movie. Yeah. And, and what does that say about us that we enjoy the fantasy of like the white house being this place of quick, yeah, quick, quick banter yeah. back and forth all the time, you know? Um, I was saying like, I think the best example of that is the show letter Kenny. Like that's probably the most true to life, you know, guys on the farm hanging out with their friends all the time. Like just when you have that many conversations about nothing, you just, <laughs> take it and you just roll it and keep it going you know what I mean find 5,000 different ways to say nothing you know Yeah. and seeing the same situation over and over again like I think that's probably more true you know where there's much more wit there than in like you said yeah than the social network we were talking about Aaron Sorkin yeah, his yeah. run like West Wing or... well and that's that's also true like um, okay let's finish with this um, well here let me before you finish yeah. can I finish with please, 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 please. <laughs> okay so I was thinking of like the one notable exception maybe I can think of somebody who's excessively witty um, and of very much in the upper realms of society, upper levels, will be Churchill, right? So I wanted to give my two favorite Churchill quotes that are 
witty and cutting at the same time. First one is, um, I think he's talking about maybe Chamberlain. I don't remember who it was. One of his political rivals. And he's like, he has all the, uh, all the vices I, or none of the vices I admire. And, uh, or he, excuse me, he has all the, uh, the virtues I dislike and none of the vices that I admire. <laughs> none of the virtues. Yeah, all the virtues all I the dislike. Part, all the virtues. And none of the virtues that I admire. And none of the vices that I admire. Or, yeah, vices that I admire. <laughs> like, love that. Um, then the second one is, uh, he's, someone's asking the difference between a tragedy and a disaster. So he's talking again about a political rival. And he's like, say that, you know, this man, his political rival, were to fall into a river. That would be a disaster. A tragedy would be someone pulling him out again. <laughs> like, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> There's my two witty nice. thoughts. Um, well, I was thinking of uh, basically the wisdom and the wit that you find in cowboy poetry. Yeah. So Incredibly witty. So, like, you know. Reincarnation. De- definitely. Yeah, definitely, like... <laughs> You know, uh, not the aristocracy. No. Um, no, definitely not. I mean, so, that's just, it seems like simple. These guys out there, but you read Baxter Black or Wally, Molly McCray. Yeah, Wally McCray. So, let's, so let me let me finish with, with that. I'm going to, uh, okay, I'm going to try to recite it by memory because I, I want to recite this tonight at story night if I can. So we'll see if I have it. Or not, and then I might have to look it up if I this. Yeah, sounds good. I'll look it up for you, and then. So this is. Uh, I'm gonna try to just uh, recite this by memory. All right. So, <clears throat> reincarnation by Wally McRae. What does reincarnation mean? A cowpoke asked his friend. His pal replied, "It happens when your life has reached its end. They comb your hair and wash your neck and clean your fingernails." And set you in a padded box away from life's travails. The box and you goes in a hole, and you who isn't uh, that's been dug into the ground. Uh, and reincarnation starts in when you're planted neath the mound. Them clods melt down, and <clears throat> just like your box and you who is inside, and then you're just beginning on your transformation ride. In a while the grass will grow upon your rendered mound, until one day upon your moldered grave a lonely flower is found. Well, say a hoss should wander by and graze upon that flower that once was you but now has become your vegetative bower. Well, the posy that the hoss done ate up with his other feed makes bone and fat and muscle essential to the steed. But... Some is left that he can't use that passes through and lays upon the ground this thing that once was you. Now suppose I wanders by and I sees this object upon the ground and I wonders and I ponders at this object that I found. Why, well, thinks of reincarnation, of life and death and such, and I come away concluding slim. You ain't changed all that much. Pretty good. Very good. I think I love it. Did I get it right, or yeah. did I? I think I might have put a few lines a little different, but yeah, a little bit different, but not bad, not bad at all. <coughs> Such a great poem. So good. <laughs> you ain't changed all that much. Anyways, I'm gonna try to recite that tonight at 
so at the gallery right now, I've got a show called 1989, which is a... Like uh, the Taylor Swift album. Just like the Taylor Swift album. Uh, it's, a, it's a show uh, with a bunch of paintings that are depicting scenes from uh, this cattle drive that happened here in Montana 30 years ago. And so last Friday, September 6th, was actually the 30th year anniversary of of like these 3,000 cowboys and cowgirls and 270 covered wagons driving down Main Street in the Heights after five days on the trail and pushing 2,700 head of cattle. And uh, so they drove them right down through, uh, you know, the heart of the Heights and Billings and uh, down to the stockyards um, in, in uh, Lockwood and one other place. But anyways, and um, so the show that I have up is paintings from that. And we had had my dad come in. He was a big part of the cattle drive. This was like a huge event in Montana uh, history. And um, it's an event that anybody that was on the drive tells stories of for the rest of their life. And, it, and so anyways, um, yeah. I don't know. That's about it. So, I'm going to try to share some cowboy poetry tonight at Story Night because I want everybody to experience that a little bit. Uh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyways, something just happened here in the house, but we can't talk about it. So, anyways, we'll, uh, we will share more uh, next week, maybe. Sounds good. Thanks, Garth. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later. Have a uh, have a good week, and uh, be good to yourselves. <laughs>